This is Black Girls Love True Crime, a true crime podcast told from the perspective of a Black girl. Hey people, welcome to another episode of Black Girls Love True Crime. Um, It's your host T. I hope everyone has been safe and has stayed healthy since the last time you heard my voice. Um, It's always so nice um, coming back and talking to you guys. It feels very refreshing and very, um, you know, like I said the last time, I'm still in the same spot that I'm in. I'm in my car. And so I feel very connected um, because, you know, whenever, uh, most of the times um, when, um, or at least a lot of the times when I listen to podcasts, I'm listening to it in my car. And so I find that a lot of people also do the same thing. And so it's very fitting that I'm sitting in my car while I am recording a podcast because it feels like I'm talking to you guys and you know if you guys are also sitting in your cars hey welcome to another episode it's nice to have you here um and let's delve into it so um before we actually start this episode something I would like to say so as as I'm doing a lot more research on this episode so um one thing that I'm finding is that I know I know for a fact that there are so many there's so much true crime content um, in the on the continent of Africa. There's so much, there's so much, there's so much. However, what I think is that it may not be recorded in the same way that um, true crime content in, you know, maybe a lot of the Western world is, is, is recorded. And so because of that, um, sometimes it takes a lot more digging to find. And that's why I think I'm so excited about a potential segment that we would have when I start to get more listeners in is to get people to send me, you know, you know, true like true crime content or true crime stories that they grew up listening to, like in their neighborhoods, in their countries, in their cities, in their towns, in their villages. Um, I know that there's going to be so much of that. Um, and so I would be really excited to have a segment, you know, every week or every so often, um, you know, where we kind of have people either write in and I can read out the stories or people can even record their stories themselves. And then I would play it on here because I think that would be a really interesting segment to have to really hear people's stories on like their own murders or true crime stories in their own countries. Um also, I there is also I know a lot of like for 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 those of us who grew up in Africa, um, at least in Nigeria. Let me let me not generalize too much, but I can say fairly confidently in Nigeria, a lot of like the true crime, um, we call it true crime here, but like a lot of it has a lot of spiritual like backing. So there is a lot of like spiritual like base like it's like oh something happened and there's a lot of witchcraft involved um and a lot of that becomes you know crime or crime stories as we would hear I don't know maybe I'm not saying it as well as some people might understand but if you know you know um so that's what I'm really curious to hear and I think I might you know reach out to friends and family to say oh you know what happened when you were younger what happened um, a lot of people have stories from like their neighborhoods from going to boarding school and they would hear random ish happening, um, you know, and and um, but yeah, so I think that would be an interesting um, segment. But for now, um, let's go back to our episode 
Um, so some of the so so in line with what I said, because some some of the some of the episodes are not recorded in a way that is necessarily is um, fully comprehensive. Um, I do have some some episodes that may just be hey they give you a name this is what this person did it's not really blown up like this is the person's early childhood this is what the person went through and then this is a crime that they committed and this is the trial and the conviction sometimes it's not even that much information and this is one of those um and so today we are um no longer in South Africa, at least for now, probably we'll go back to South Africa. But for now, we are in the well, at this point, when this was committed, um, it was called the Belgian Congo, um, the Belgian, Benjo, Belgian Congo. But now it is part of the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Um, but then it was called the Belgian Congo. And so I am talking about this guy. Um, his name was called William Unic, either Unic or Unic. But um, he was a police officer. He was a Belgian Congo police constable. And he was a mass murderer. And so this this is a very, very interesting case, right? It's a very interesting case because the way that it was is that he... So, so this is, is it's a mass it's a it's a mass murder murder case and so it was interesting in that he committed this mass murder or a rampage killing um one time like killed a lot of people and then there was like a break I guess he wasn't caught and then it was like a three year span and then he did it again uh, and so that's what's really interesting. Yeah, that we was it was three years apart where he went to two separate spree killings. Um, I don't know if there was maybe a psychotic break. We don't have that much base. We don't. We actually don't have that much information on this guy. I don't know if there was a psychotic break where he just kind of like went crazy and killed people. And so the first spree that we talk about. So he had a first murder spree and it occurred um, near somewhere called Mahagi. And he killed 21 people with an axe um, before he ended up escaping. Um, and he ended up in, um, he, he ended up, I guess, escaping. And then he ended up in, they said, they said the British Tanganyika territory. Um, 21 people with an axe. This is, I mean, you know, when I think about things like this, because I'm sitting here, imagine how that would happen, how that would play out, right? You know what? 21 people. So he started off with an axe. This wasn't like a gun where, you know, if I mean, because when it's gunfire, everyone is kind of like, there's where are you going to go with gunfire? But with an axe, like, weren't there people coming behind him, like to hold him down? That's why I feel like this may have been like a psychotic break. And, you know, if it's a psychotic break, sometimes it's superhuman strength. Where maybe people are, I don't know, like maybe, I mean, also an axe, you're just like kind of slashing away. But, you know, by the time you kill the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, so like no one could be like, all right, let's go behind this guy. Like, let's subdue him. I don't know. But um, there might also be many different factors at play here. He was a police constable. So maybe there is that authority figure. And so, um, you know. Maybe people, I mean, I don't know. Maybe, I mean, once again, authority figure, if you're out here killing people with an axe, my guy, like, you got to stop, you know? But anyway, he killed 21 people with an axe before escaping. And then, um, and then here they say, apparently, and I, and I read this specific, um, phrase in multiple, multiple, um, multiple 
research that I did, it says apparently because of social misunderstandings with his boss. I don't even know what that means. So I guess he got in a, he, he didn't, he and his, he didn't like what his boss did or he and his boss got into it. He went on a second rampage. This was three years later. Um, and this was in the early hours of February 11th, 1957. So now, now this time he was armed with a stolen police rifle. Um, now this one, people are in trouble. So armed with a stolen police rifle, 50 rounds of ammunition and an axe. And he started killing people in the area of Malampata, a village about 40 miles southeast of Moanta. Now, this is interesting, right? Because I'm sitting here like thinking to myself, so he had an axe. He also had a rifle. How is he using the both of them at the same time? Like, what kind of man is this? Like, is he like freaking like Hulk? Like, how is he using both of them at the same time? So within 12 hours, he shot 10, he shot dead 10 men, eight women, eight children. He murdered five more men with the axe. He stabbed another one. He burned two women and a child. He and a strangled a 15-year-old girl. And so he killed 36 people the second time around. 21 the first time and 36 people the second time around. Like, I, I can't even... So that's what I'm trying to... Like, I can't... I don't know. Like, I feel like I need more. I need more. I need more. I need more. I don't know. I don't understand the situation here. I don't know how this happened. Like, what was happening? What were people doing? Like, as I mean, I feel like there's something going on here. There's something at play here. It's almost as if people kind of just watched him kill other people and didn't do anything. Maybe there is an element of that where people maybe felt, I, I keep bringing the authority figure thing to play because I'm not sure here. Um, because it almost feels like he, okay, he, he shot 10 men. And then all these other people, he went and burned two women and a child. He strangled a 15-year-old girl. And this was all within 12 hours. I mean, my guess, honestly, is probably that he wasn't doing this at the same time. So he did this within a 12-hour span. He probably went, shot a whole bunch of people, right? And that was probably at the same time. Maybe moved on to like a neighboring town or something. And then, you know, machete, macheted or, you know, used an axe to kill other people. Maybe burn, you know, a woman and a child. Like he probably didn't. Oh, so then it says he then changed out of his police uniform into clothes that were stolen from one of the victims and he fled. And amongst the people that he killed um, were reportedly his own, his own wife whom he had killed in their hut before setting it on fire. So I guess his wife and maybe another woman and a child, uh, as well as the wife yeah, of a police surgeon, were the people that he burned. So that's the thing. Like, he didn't do it all at once. He probably, he was doing it, you know, at different stops. I, I feel like this man has to have been on something. He has to have been on something because this is actually insane that was there no one else to be able to kind of stop him. So for nine days, he was sought by um, Wasukuma tribesmen 
Um, so I'm, I'm guessing um, tribesmen are people, you know, in the community who, you know, would be there to kind of maybe help the policemen or kind of keep some kind of order in, this, in the community. So he was sought by them, the police, and eventually a company of King's African Rifles is what they said. Um, in Tang- Tanganyika's greatest manhunt up to that time. I can imagine. Like, that's what I'm trying to say. Where were all of these people when... Let me stop. That's what... This is what it... Like, this is insane. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm sure he, like, just went bizarre. Um, So, despite the extensive search operation, including dogs, wow, and aircraft, and a posted reward of $350, and this was in 1957, in Congo, um... He eluded his pursuers until he finally showed up at his house, um, at the house of someone who they call, uh, he, he showed up at the house of someone, I mean, um, Yumbu Ben Ukumbu, who lived only two miles from where he had done, where, where he had committed all these crimes in search for food. I can't even imagine being this Yumbu Ben Ukumbu. This guy came out here out of nowhere because he would have been all over the place. Can you imagine? Everyone would have told each other about him. Um, and so when, of course, um, I, I don't know how. I feel like there's so much missing here. Um, they, say, they said when Uyumbu reported the incident to police, he was asked to keep Unek with him and notify them um, should a kill should the killer come again to his home? So I guess the um I guess he came, he searched for food, and then he left. And then after he left, okay, that makes sense. Because I was thinking Yumbu notified the police while he was there. But after he left, he went and told the cops like, "Hey, this guy came over to my house." Um, and so the cops were like, "If he ever comes back again, um, you need to um you need to notify us and try your best to keep him there." And so, excuse me, uh, and so the next day, he has some nerve. He really has some nerve because the next day he comes back to this guy's house at 1 a.m. He's unarmed. Um, and so Yumbu sends his wife to the police. He gave the guy food and he kept him engaged in conversation for nearly two hours before help arrived. And at this point, um, Yumbo ran out of his house, and then the police threw in a smoke smoke bomb, and they set the house on fire. Um, I, I'm really yo okay. Anyway, Yunuk severely injured when attempting to evade capture, later succumbed to his wounds wounds in the hospital. Um, Yumbo received a financial reward of um, 125, I think, this is pounds. Um, yeah, as well as the British Empire Medal for his bravery leading to the capture of a constable. Um, okay, all right, this is, um, this is very interesting. There's so many questions I have. There's so many questions I have here. So, so, so many questions because, uh, but I get it. I mean, so, um, because and, and they're all questions about about this guy, the boldness of him. You killed so many people, 
you come back and I think the, I, I keep going back to this authority figure. I think that there is a there was a sense of entitlement and a sense of privilege here because I think that he had the nerve to kill all these people, come back to someone's house and just ask for food, not unarmed, thinking that, you know, nothing was going to happen. Um, and I think that that's what it was. Um, and so, but Luckily, this guy was bold enough and he was able to call the cops and, you know, eventually he he was captured um, for, well, I mean, he ended up dying for it. Um, after and in response to all of the murders, a fund was created to help the descendants of those who were killed and a maternity clinic was built in memory of his victims. Uh, as, as I'm sure, his rampage ranks amongst the deadliest of the 20th century. This is um this is actually very, very insane to read because I kind of went back and forth about whether or not I wanted to share this because it felt like so many unanswered questions. Do you know what I mean? Like who was he? Um he died at the age of 27 to to 28. You know what I mean? Like he was so young. He killed 57 people in two um sprees you know what I mean like he wasn't like this was a serial killer per se he just had two big rampage killings two big mass murderers and so I thought it was really interesting and I really contemplated whether or not I wanted to share this because I wasn't sure if it really fit into like my talk about the person's childhood talk about the person's history talk about the killings talk talk about conviction um it didn't really fit into that at all because a lot of it was just like but how, but why, but what, huh? Um, but I also think that like a lot of true crime stories, that's really what it is. You, no one knows, no one knows um, why the killer did what the killer did. No one understands why that happened. Um, a lot of times we are speculating on what happened or why this happened. And this just had a lot of speculation, you know, um, but but that's just what it is. And I thought that it was, you know, it's still worth sharing. It's still worth sharing because it, it, it's, it's one of the biggest, you know, mass murders or murders um, or the rampage, rampage killings um, in, in all of Africa, um, of the 20th century. So I thought it was really interesting to share. Um, I know that it's not the usual fashion in the day, in the way that we share, but I also thought it was interesting and that's one for, one for Congo. So, um, thank you guys for listening to the, to today's episode. And, um, I want you guys, please stay safe. Please stay, um, you know, stay healthy. And I would talk to you, um, at the, I'll talk to you on the next episode. Um, bye.